You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Margaret Atwood. This program originally aired in 2010. This is Word of Mouth on New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today we kick off a new season of Writers on a New England Stage in conversation with Margaret Atwood. Atwood is author of more than 40 books of fiction, poetry, and critical essays, and is among the most honored writers in recent history. She's been shortlisted for the Booker Prize five times and won the prestigious award once. Her 2003 novel, Oryx and Crake, was the first in what she calls the Mad Adam trilogy. She stepped onto the stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth to read from her most recent novel, the second volume in the trilogy, called The Year of the Flood. Well, that was, that was just lovely. Thank you so much. And this is a spectacular uh, thing, this building. And all of the work that you have done on it and the history which I got explained to me, it's really wonderful that you have this here and that you've managed to save it and um, do things in it. It's great. If you are um, a person in New Hampshire, and if you're out there in the audience, and if you're listening to this, and if your last name is the same as mine, you are probably related to me. (laughs) I I do come from many ancestors who got kicked out of various places, and uh, (laughs) this is one of them. (laughs) For being on the wrong side of whoever it was that won. (laughs) So, hello, distant relatives, and uh, if your name is Webster or Killam, it's the same deal. How did you think I could write about those totalitarian Puritans with such accuracy? (laughs) Uh, So tonight it's the year of the flood, and I'm also happy to say that I'm I'm glad that my friend Stephen King is in the audience. Woo! You, you probably didn't know that I sometimes sneak references to his books into my more academically inclined publications, <laughs> thereby astonishing the natives. But I, but I do, and if you look in my book on writing called Negotiating with the Dead, and if you look in Chapter 5, you will see that I do not lie, at least not on this occasion. So it is, it is great fun, and we were just talking about comic book superheroes in their more Jungian aspects. <laughs> Information that is of use to both of us. And uh, Joe Hill is also here. And he, too, is interested in comics, and we were just talking about his comic called Lock and Key. Uh, I started drawing comics when I was a child because I didn't know any better. Uh, There wasn't any TV. So I'm quite familiar, and I'm I'm looking forward to exploring that. And rumor has it that Dan Brown may possibly also be there, out there. And (laughs) 
Anipheus, I would just like to say that having read both books, I never had any doubt that you would win that case. <laughs> So now it's on to this book. Uh, it's the year of the flood. We, when it opens, a uh, very catching man-made virus has almost annihilated the human race. I, I love that word, almost. It, it never does totally annihilate it in books because there has to be somebody for the story to be about. <laughs> Uh, but it has done, as, it, as such, things, um, such things have actually occurred in various parts of the world in the past, but this one is kind of global. And we're following two different narrators. One of them is called Toby. She was an older person of possibly 40, and she has survived the... Uh, <laughs> I once wrote a short story in, in high school about this really, really, really old, decrepit, falling apart, moldering person who had no hope. And uh, she was 40. And <laughs> I now think of that as an extremely youthful age. So when I say older, I just mean older than 12. <laughs> so this older than 12 person uh, has survived uh, this event by locking herself into a spa which I think would be a very good place to wait out <laughs> a lethal global pandemic plague because <laughs> it has a lot of towels. This is so, so important. They're very comforting. They're pink. It's a cheerful color. And uh, it, it being a new age type of spa, the facial products are edible. <laughs> if you ever come across something called avocado body butter, you know, read all the ingredients. You could probably eat it if you really <laughs> hard up. Anyway, she's in there holding out and wondering whether uh, she does suspect there may be, there has to be other people alive, but she just doesn't really know. And uh, the second person uh, is a younger person, and I do mean younger than 30 but older than 12. Uh, and she has survived it by being locked up in the quarantine zone of a high-end uh, sex club where she has been working as a trapeze dancer. And uh, the name of that sex club is Scales and Tails. So I will read a little bit from each voice, and then I will read from the third voice, which is the voice of Adam One, the leader of a cult. And I've already met people who say they kind of are members of this cult. They just didn't know. <laughs> it's called the God's Gardeners. They are a very green outfit. They do their gardening on flat rooftops in slums because they're urban gardeners, and they keep bees, as people are now already doing. And they are very, very, very vegetarian unless you get very, very, very hungry. And... In which case, you have to start at the bottom of the food chain. And they have a theology, and they have a hierarchy, and they have, um, they have a list of saints and feast days. For instance, Al Gore, you'll be happy to know in the future, will be a saint. Yeah. 
no matter what you may think now. And uh, Robert Burns is a saint of mice. He's the saint of interspecies communication. And uh, Rachel Carson, of course, we already knew was one. Um, so they have their saints, and they also have hymns, and what you've been hearing has been the music to those hymns. And um, I'm going to sing one of those hymns at the end. In fact, it is the only one I can sing. It is a children's festival hymn for tiny voices such as mine. Toby says, In the early morning, Toby climbs up to the rooftop to watch the sun rise. She uses a mop handle for balance. The elevator stopped working some time ago, and the back stairs are slick with damp. And if she slips and topples, there won't be anyone to pick her up. As the first heat hits, mist rises from among the swath of trees between her and the derelict city. The air smells faintly of burning, a smell of caramel and tar and rancid barbecues, and the ashy but greasy smell of a garbage dump fire after it's been raining. The abandoned towers in the distance are like the coral of an ancient reef, bleached and colorless, devoid of life. The sun brightens in the east, reddening the blue-gray haze that marks the distant ocean. The vultures roosting on hydro poles fan out their wings to dry them, opening themselves like black umbrellas. One and then another lifts off on the thermals and spirals upwards. If they plummet suddenly, it means they've spotted carrion. Vultures are our friends, the gardeners used to teach. They purify the earth. They are God's necessary dark angels of bodily dissolution. Imagine how terrible it would be if there were no death. Do I still believe this, Toby wonders? Everything is different up close. Wren says, Beware of words. Be careful what you write. Leave no trails. This is what the gardeners taught us when I was a child among them. They told us to depend on memory because nothing written down could be relied on. The spirit travels from mouth to mouth, not from thing to thing. Books could be burnt, paper crumble away, computers could be destroyed. Only the spirit lives forever, and the spirit isn't a thing. As for writing, it was dangerous, said the Adams and the Eves, because your enemies could trace you through it and hunt you down and use your words to condemn you. But now that the waterless flood has swept over us, any writing I might do is safe enough because those who would have used it against me are most likely dead, so I can write down anything I want. What I write is my name, Wren, with an eyebrow pencil on the wall beside the mirror. I can't see out the window, it's glass brick. I can't get out the door, it's locked on the outside. I still have air, though, and water, as long as the solar doesn't quit. I still have food. I'm lucky. I'm really very lucky. Count your luck, Amanda used to say. So I do. First, I was lucky to be working here at Scales when the flood hit. 
Second, it was even luckier that I was shut up this way in the sticky zone because it kept me safe. I got a rip in my biofilm body glove. A client got carried away and bit me right through the green sequence, and I was waiting for my test results. It wasn't a wet rip with secretions and membranes involved. It was a dry rip near the elbow, so I wasn't that worried. Still, they checked everything here at Scales. They had a reputation to keep up. We were known as the cleanest, dirty girls in town. <laughs> Scales and tails took care of you. They really did. If you're a talent, that is. Good food, a doctor if you needed one, and the tips were great because the men from the top corpse came here. It was well run, though it was in a seedy area. All the clubs were. That was a matter of image, Mortis would say. Seedy was good for business, because unless there's an edge, something lurid or tawdry, a whiff of sleaze, what separated our brand from the run-of-the-mill product the guy could get at home with the face cream and the white cotton panties? <laughs> Adam one, further along in the plot. He and a few of his remaining group have managed to hide out the uh, pandemic in a, in a cellar. But now they've run out of food and they're coming out. But first he's giving them a little, a little sermon because today is Predator Day. The gardeners do like to include all aspects of nature in their celebrations. On Predator Day, we celebrate not God the loving and gentle father and mother, but God the tiger, or God the lion, or God the bear, or God the wild boar, or God the wolf, or even God the shark. Whatever the symbol, Predator Day is devoted to the qualities of terrifying appearance and overwhelming strength, which, since they are at times desired by us, must also belong to God, as all good things belong to Him. On Predator Day, we meditate on the alpha predator aspects of God. The suddenness and ferocity with which an apprehension of the divine may appear to us our smallness and fearfulness, may I say our mouse-likeness, in the face of such power, our feelings of individual annihilation in the brightness of that splendid light. God walks in the tender dawn gardens of the mind, but he also prowls in its night forests. He is not a tame being, my friends. He is a wild being and cannot be summoned and controlled like a dog. Human beings may well have killed the last tiger and the last lion, but their names are cherished by us, and as we say those names, we hear behind them the tremendous voice of God at the moment of their creation. God must have said to them, my carnivores, I command you to fulfill your appointed task of culling your prey species, lest these multiply overmuch and exhaust their food supply, and sicken and die out. Go forth, therefore, leap, run, roar, lurk, spring. 
For I delight in your dread hearts and in the gold and green jewels of your eyes and in your well-fashioned sinews and in your scissor teeth and your scimitar claws, which I myself have bestowed upon you. And I give you my blessing and pronounce you good. As we prepare to leave our sheltering Ararat, let us ask ourselves, which is more blessed, to eat or to be eaten, to flee or to chase, to give or to receive? For these are at heart the same question. Such a question may soon cease to be theoretical. We do not know what alpha predators may lurk without. The God's gardeners do try, sometimes with success, sometimes with less success, to combine religion and science. Here's the one hymn of theirs that I can sing. It is a children's hymn. All the information in it is scientifically correct. And it is a festival called Mole Day, which is the festival of underground life. And because underground life is quite small, it is therefore, uh, that's why it's a children's festival. <laughs> it all makes sense. <laughs> mm. We praise the tiny perfect moles that garden underground. Boom, boom. The ant, the worm, the nematode, wherever they are found. Boom, boom. They live their whole lives in the dark, unseen by human sight. The earth is like the air to them. Their day is like our night. They turn the soil and till it. They make the plants to thrive. The earth would be a desert if they were not alive. Boom, 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 boom. The little carrion beetles that seek unlikely places return our husks to elements and tidy up our spaces. And so for God's small creatures beneath the field and wood, let us today give joyful thanks, for God has found them good. Let us today give joyful thanks, for God has found them We're back with word of mouth and a conversation with author Margaret Atwood from the Writers on a New England Stage series. The best-selling author of dark novels like The Handmaid's Tale and Oryx and Crake rejects the idea that hers are works of science fiction, preferring to call them speculative fiction, which she says could really happen. We began by talking about her newest novel, The Year of the Flood, the second volume in a trilogy set in the near future when the human race has been nearly decimated by a plague. I spoke with her and took questions from the audience live on stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. The Year of the Flood presents a wry and chilling description of a dystopian universe where animals are genetically spliced, social needs are outsourced to a giant, faceless corporation, 
and only a few humans hang on by a thread. Well, a dystopia to me is an organized, nasty society. And uh, what we're getting in the book as we open it is hardly any society at all. Everything's doing very well except people. It's it's an idea that everything has been, you know, it's not basically, um, how can I put this, it's not the road. You know, it's not all sort of gray. It's uh, quite a lot more flourishing. And I don't know whether you saw that book called The World Without Us. A couple of years ago, it's a nonfiction book about how long it would take New York to crumble away if there were no people there maintaining it. Nature moves in. I can give you the short form of that book. Rats and cockroaches do worse. Vines and deer do better. Well, I wonder, when you look at the future, do you feel optimistic, pessimistic? Oh, well, we all say we're realists, don't we? (laughs) Well, this is the second book in what you're calling the Mad Adam trilogy. Yes, I am hopefully and optimistically. See how hopeful and optimistic I am. But, you know, sort of still a realist. Yeah, I'm hopefully and optimistically calling it that. (laughs) Actually, that answers a question. Somebody did ask if you're writing a follow-up to this book, so you are presumably writing a third. I'm writing a third one. But this book runs simultaneously. It's not quite prequel. It's not quite sequel. No, it's the same time space. It's it's from the Victorian novel uh, plan in which you would have these chapters called Meanwhile. And you knew that when you were reading the meanwhile chapter, that what you were reading happened at the same time as the chapter that you just read, but in a different place and with a different group of people who, however you knew, were going to all meet up before the end of the book. And something quite interesting was going to happen. We always hope that. Meanwhile, in a yes. very different voice. This, as far as I can tell, is the first time you've done this with a book, kind of written a, a meanwhile. Is that, that is something? absolutely the first time that I have ever done it. What made you decide to return to that universe of Oryx and Crake, the yes. 2003 book? Oryx and Crake uh, is told by one character who's called Jimmy, and then he renames himself Snowman uh, after he thinks he's the last person left on the planet. And he has grown up inside the privileged part of the future society towards which we are surely not heading. Um, (laughs) He has grown up inside the techno bureau, governo, corporo entity in the future, but unfortunately he's not very good at math. So (laughs) instead of going to college at the Watson Crick Institute, where they do those things. He is packed off to the Martha Graham Academy. One of my <laughs> favorite details about uh, the book. A rundown, the Martha Graham Institute. Yes, a, run, a rundown organization that mm, teaches the liberal arts. And, uh, <laughs> how to produce your very own naked pride and prejudice using, <laughs> using computer technology, which, of course, Jimmy has done. Um, And he's the only narrator, which, of course, caused all of those people who had been saying to me for years, how come you write so much about women, blah, blah, to say immediately, well, why did you write it all from the point of view of a man? So (laughs) you can't please them. Um, So I did want to go outside the privileged part 
and into the God's gardeners, whom we glimpse uh, in Oryx and Crake, but just as seen on the TV news, because people within the uh, techno bureaucro corporal governmento um, compounds don't get out. It's too unsafe out there. But they do watch TV. So we have seen the God's gardeners protesting various things and, um, you know, having the Boston coffee party and things like that. Uh, <laughs> Another great detail. <laughs> There's so much that you just get dead on. There's a ubiquitous uh, coffee chain called the Happy Cuppa. Well, There's the um, look around. sexual aid called Bliss Plus. Yes, which kind yes, of cures we'll all uh, dysfunction. Yes, yes it, it gets rid of all the side effects. Um, <laughs> that is what it is advertised as doing. Uh, yes, there's always these uh, unfortunate things people aren't thinking of at the time. Is that something you'd ever considered doing with another book? Telling when, it in another voice, going back and sort of, you know, can we imagine The Handmaid's Tale from the male point of view, for example? You could. Be my guest. <laughs> 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 Have a go. I'm an optimist. Uh, yes, I, I do, uh, unfortunately, being a person of levity and no respect. No, I won't say I have no respect. It's not true. I have moments of unbecoming levity. And I find that as I grow older and get turned more and more into this icon, people get more and more alarmed by that. <laughs> oh my God, she's still alive. <laughs> What are we going to do? Back in the closet. Uh, so I have um, rewritten, I've written a part for Gertrude in, in Hamlet called Gertrude Talks Back because she doesn't get actually to say much in that play. And uh, I've also written what happens to Horatio after that play. Oh. <laughs> so I, I do, I won't call it messing around. Um, With other not. people's books. Yes. <laughs> I'd love to hear more about the hymns. I was just, they're so interesting. They're so Blakean. That's one of the things that... These, this group is quite Blakean. Mm. And I have to say that we opened, because we, we did a book tour last year in which we performed uh, parts of the book. I, I had uh, three readers, as you might expect, and singing groups uh, and a script. And I was the narrator. And everywhere we did this, they got the script... They got to pick their own three uh, actors, and they got to pull together their own singing group and do it in whatever way they wanted. So we got everything from soup to uh, some pretty strange uh, nuts. But <laughs> I, was, I was at the, all of them. I'm the only person who was at all of them, <laughs> point of act. It came about because my, my partner's... My agent's partner is Orville Stober, who is right, a, a musician and composer. Mm -hmm. And he got stuck into the manuscript when it was just a typescript, because Phoebe was reading it. And he started channeling Adam One. That could be dangerous, I would imagine. Uh, well, she said, you know, she had to say, Orville, it's lunchtime. Um, <laughs> lunchtime, we're not started, having maggots. <laughs> he started composing the music to the hymns, which I had not imagined having music written mm -hmm. to them. I'd, they will all go to pretty standard hymn tunes. Mm -hmm. uh, the Emily Dickinson verse, the William Blake Songs of Innocence and Experience verse. Most of them are in that form. And so um, 
4343 ABAB, very simple. And some of them are a little bit more like the, um, the To Be a Pilgrim hymn, and some of them are, so they're different forms, but they're, they're standard hymn forms. But he got into them and composed music for what he thought they might possibly sound like more in the future with more of a kind of fusion mm -hmm. influence. And once he had done that, we said, go Orville. And then we said, why don't we record them, which we did. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, we could make them into part of a dramatic and musical thing, which I took on as a way of uh, raising consciousness and funds for bird conservation. That's something you've, you and your husband, in fact, are very We're active. quite involved in it. Right. Well, I ask about the hymns. By the way, I should let the audience know that you can listen to the hymns on uh, the site. And there are ringtones, and yeah, there's sheet music. <laughs> yes, I mean, we put all that up. It's, it's out there. It's, it's there, and some people are using this in their very own churches. In fact, we opened in, in Scotland with the Adam one being read by Richard Holloway, who, in fact, was a bishop. And he got very thoroughly into it. He really knew how to do the sermon. And after he had done the whole thing, he said, I almost converted myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I can imagine some converts. Um, you, you've, you created this religion, really, with hymns and, and saints. Not saints and, and Saint hymns. Saint E.O. Wilson, yes. Saint Ewell Gibbons, Diane yes. Fossey, yes. a number, Rachel Carson, yes. uh, who you mentioned There's many, before. Actually, they're from all over the world, but if you come upon a name that doesn't seem very familiar to, it, you, to you, you can find it on the internet. They're all out, real people and they're all out there. Well, I wonder, is this a religion you could get behind, Margaret Atwood? I mean, you've invented it. Well, I am in that Groucho Marx position. I'm not sure I would wish to belong to a religion that would have me for a member. <laughs> but belonging to an organized thing, you know, it's quite different from having a religion of your own, is it not? I would hope so. You would hope so. There you go. You can join. <laughs> I may be a convert. But you'll, you'll, le you'll learn a lot about... Oh, if you do join, you will learn a lot of things such as um, what weeds you can eat off your front lawn. Well, that was one of the things I thought, you know, that prepared Wren and Toby for what was to come. And We I should all know this. Well, I understand that in your life, you were raised, uh, your father's an entomologist, your mom a dietitian and a nutritionist, I believe. And you spent a lot of your childhood in northern Quebec, I think. That's uh, right, and in northern Ontario. Without electricity. That's so right. you lived a little bit like a gardener. Oh, yes. One of God's well, gardeners. I've certainly done a lot of gardening. It, I, I have to tell you, it is different when the weeds you are pulling out are somebody else's weeds. When they're your own weeds, you actually feel better about it. I was a child laborer. How can I put this? Uh, <laughs> yes, I, um, I have the knowledge. I'm actually interested in hearing a little bit about this science and religion reconciled. The, okay. the God's gardeners, okay. you know, they cobble together Short this religion. Answer. Short answer. Because I'm from Canada, I know the Bible very well. Because we did not have the separation of church and state, and I'm old enough to have still been in the school system when they were still reading it every day to begin the day. And 
Then I went to high school, it was the same thing. And then I went to university and studied English literature from Anglo-Saxon to 1950. And unless you knew the Bible, you could actually not pass the exam. So there are some interesting readings of certain passages that people just haven't thought of yet, but they will now. <laughs> Where people get hung up on the whole science and religion thing is that they don't understand that science can only talk about what it can measure. And as Adam once says, the spirit cannot be measured. So how can you even talk about it in a scientific way? But on the other hand, those who try to pin down the Bible um, to ordinary time by saying, for instance, that the earth is 4,000 years old, haven't read the Bible either, where it says clearly, God's time is not our time. You see, that's what Adam once says. It's multidimensional. Very multidimensional. We have no way to guess it. Well, I re recommend to you the sermon on Noah and the flood and the covenant that comes after that. The fact is that all religions have their roots in a rapport with nature, including Christianity. And all you have to do is go back and look at the great cathedrals, which are intertwined with all kinds of plant life and animal life. And that view did not go out until the 17th and 18th century when a mechanical view of nature came in. So the mechanical view of nature, that animals are just machines and uh, we don't have to have, pay any attention to them, that's very recent. If you go back to the roots, it's not like that at all. The world in this, it's actually the United States, is my guess, a dystopian sort of uh, vision of the United States. East Coast is my guess as well. It's always the East Coast because <laughs> you can see where the sun rises. It's rising over the ocean, so you know it's the East Coast. And you, you, we also have Wisconsin as a desert. There's a desert it's in Wisconsin. It's heading that way. The world, the world, <laughs> this, the, the land has really changed. And there's a kind of... Well, first of all, there are all these genetic splices of creatures. We the liobams. They're, they're coming. Well, I, you <laughs> Maybe know, not the FDA one, is but. talking about um, <laughs> saying okay to genetic salmon. And I just wondered if, you know, in looking at issues like that, you think it's coming. Well, maybe not the exact same things that are in the book, although there are some pretty commercializable ideas. For instance, <laughs> for instance the, the sheep that can grow human hair, yeah. which can then be transplanted onto you, you know, just grown with your own DNA onto your head. I think that would go really well. There was, however, wasn't there a drawback that when it rained you smelled a bit like a lamb chop? Yeah, that, that, there's a downside to everything. <laughs> well, there's an, a question from the audience that's kind of about that and something that I picked up on as well, that Ren, the pole dancer, or the trapeze dancer at Scales and Tails, the dancers there, they dress up in biofilm and scales and plumage. There's a kind of fetishization of this animal world. And Never this been to a nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> this question is, did you intend to create a comparison between the gardener's reverence for animals and the rest of the world's reverence for sexuality when you portrayed Wren and the other sex workers dressed in animalistic costumes? That's a very complicated question. We have a very complicated um, audience. I have a, yeah, obviously I've got an audience that knows more than I do, and that's always a good thing. <laughs> It means that you're better than you thought. Um, 
So the did you intend part, not particularly, but now that you've mentioned it, it sounds, <laughs> it sounds good to me. Well, I... <laughs> me to it. There are a series of questions here about your process. You know, you create vocabularies, creatures, you know, these landscapes, retail stores, very detailed, very broad. I just wonder how you do it. Do you look out in the world and just think, I don't know, Lyobam, the lion crossed with the lamb. I mean, how do you, how do, you do this? I think it's a personality flaw. <laughs> I don't know. I think that if you're creating an, an alternate world, or in fact, if you're creating any fictional world, you have to be as true to it as you can be. So I think all fiction writers do that. They, they want to be true to the world that they are creating. Since the world that I'm creating has something to do with the one we actually live in, I like to do the, the science, and uh, I like to do the research. <laughs> well, I think it's a personality defect that all of us can appreciate, I must say. But also the sort of social landscapes beyond the scientific. You know, we have big box stores called Solar Care, other outlets that boast about green consciousness. Is this any kind of commentary on commodifying or marketing well, greenness? That's just, that's just happening. Oh, a lot of these things are happening already. For instance, the green movement within religion is already happening. Uh, we already have the green Bible, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, tasteful linen covers, the green parts in green, Archbishop Tutu, everything you might require, a list of virtuous green things at the back. I've got one. Uh, Orville gave it to me. So, <laughs> so all of these things are... It's, it's, it's the way things are flowing. And they're going to be, really, I, I think it's just looking at trends and seeing what they would be like if they went a little bit further. And you do walk the walk. You're charting the carbon footprint of the book tour for this book. Yes. And there's also a documentary film being made of it. I think you told me it's coming out in it's December. It's called In the Wake of the in Flood. The of it's the already flood. at film festivals, but it will be in DVD form um, in December. But you've also, rather than flying, you've been uh, taking steamships or ships across the yeah, country. Yeah, which, as it turns out, isn't that virtuous, as I now discover, but never mind. Um, but you drive a hybrid. You don't use air conditioning in your home, from what I understand. I, I, just because I don't like it. I mean, there are some occasions when, <laughs> when, you, when you have to do these things. If you're in a tower with boxy rooms in it, and no ventilation, you're going to have to do it. I, I think what we're going to have to do in the future is rethink how we build buildings, mm -hmm. because a lot of the ones we've got now, they just assume air conditioning. If you want to go onto a website called Zero Footprint, uh, you will discover there a couple of contests having to do with uh, re rethinking how people are building houses, uh, rethinking our whole energy problem because it turns out that 40% of wasted energy is through buildings. Is this book a call for eco-activism? Books that make calls for things are pretty problematic. Let me put it this way. People don't like to feel they're being preached to. And it's been a long conversation, at least 4,000 years long, uh, should 
Should stories entertain or should they instruct? If they only instruct, you don't read them because they're too shrieking boring. <laughs> if they only entertain, you may only read them once. So what you presumably want um, is a blend, and, and every story actually does that anyway in some way. There is some speculation that the storytelling um, program in human beings is very old, comes from the Pleistocene where it gave people a survival edge. Just think about that. If you could say, over there in that river, Uncle George got eaten by a crocodile, all the people that you told that story to did not have to go over there and try it out for themselves. <laughs> they knew to stay away from there. And it was similar to, to hunting the giraffe. You know, this is how we hunted the giraffe. Last time we caught it, maybe you should try this method. So this would just give you uh, a lot of knowledge. And, and we are, we, as kids, we tell stories. We, we, we come into the world with the with the programs for language, for art, for dancing, for singing, and for storytelling. And just like God's gardeners, they tell their stories only orally. It carries well, on they have become very one. suspicious of, of, first of all, they're very suspicious of any kind of e-technology, like your smartphone, um, because they quite rightly say, if you can see it, it can see you. <laughs> and in a society where that's full of you know, control and spies. You actually don't want people knowing where you are all the time. So they don't use those kinds of things, and they don't write anything down, because as Wren says, it can be dangerous for you. So they do the oral transmission of knowledge, and they use an easily erasable form of visual instruction called the blackboard. <laughs> <laughs> But it's interesting because in this book you have a religion that can preach. There are literally sermons in this book. Many, many, many of them. We might call them homilies. They're little homilies. They're uh, speeches that Adam one makes to his his flock on special occasions. Yeah, they're sermons. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, do you worry about that? You know, writing that sort of novel of that has political topics in it, like there is a wall being built to keep the Tex-Mex people out. There is internal rendition. Wait for it. Yeah. yeah. And there is, uh, there are a number of different things. You can watch on a live camera people who are imprisoned, basically hunting and torturing each other. So... This is one of those free speech conversations. Should we, able, be, able, should we be allowed to see anything at all on TV? And? You th what do you think? I don't know. There was a time when all executions were public, and they were big celebrations. People went and got drunk, they sang songs, they had a great time, uh, and then the person got hanged. So that didn't stop until the end of the 19th century, when good taste took over. Uh, in Canada, I think the last one was when somebody misjudged the weight of the body and the head came off, oh. and that was considered really kind of yucky, and <laughs> they decided that maybe they should do those things out of sight. But that was, that's very recently that we did that. And anything that we've done very recently can be very quickly reversed. But do you worry about 
writing about topical things like that? Will they stand the test I'm, of time? I'm really too old to worry about things like that. <laughs> <laughs> and people do say, young people say to me, you know, I'm so worried. What if I write about my family and, and they don't like it? And I say, that's just the choice you're going to have to make. Well, then, I'm not going to pick up free speech, and I'm going to go back to Oryx and Creek, because there are a number of questions about it. Um, one, would you consider, and or have you been approached, to adapt the Year of the Flood and or Oryx and Creek into films? They are novels that seem like they would adapt well to films. I think that you would have to have a very great stylist. I'm thinking a film like Blade Runner, hmm. which has quite wonderful, but because it is so well designed. And if you think of some of the features in these books, they're either going to be, if they're not done well, they're just going to be enormously stupid. So for instance, the race of genetically modified humanoids in this book, which have a lot of features that would actually be quite desirable. For instance, they've got built-in insect repellent. I would like to have that. Uh, <laughs> They have built-in sunblock, they don't need clothes, they don't have to have the fashion industry. Uh, they can purr in order to heal people. I had a little conversation, a little disagreement with my brother about that, but we can talk about purring if you like. Uh, but the best thing of all is that they don't have to worry about romantic love because they're seen as seasonal like basically moose. And, um, and just so that there's no confusion, when they're in season, parts of them turn blue. So I just want you to picture a film with people with no clothes on, hmm. with, uh, parts of them turning blue, and these are not their ears. <laughs> it's too hard to, for me to envision. Yeah, so it's... <laughs> you, you mentioned the dystopian, that it is not a wasteland at the beginning, that there are these lush, almost visions of paradise in these rooftop gardens where the gardeners tend and commune with bees and the animals. And there's a question here. In both your books, The Handmaid's Tale and in Oryx and Craig, you present dystopian futures, but also glimmers of hope through the despair. Do you really feel hope and a way through the inevitable trying times ahead? All right. My, my uh, mentor in this area of how to construct your very own dystopia <laughs> is George Orwell. Hmm. Uh, I must have read 1984 about three years after it was published. I'm that old. Um, and people often think that that book ends with the boot stamping into the human face forever and with Winston Smith defeated and getting drunk at the bar and pretty soon he's going to be shot and he loves Big Brother. And people think it ends there, but it doesn't. It ends with a... Um, treatise on Newspeak written in standard English in the past tense. Hmm. That is part of the book and what it means is that the world of 1984 is over and somebody's writing about that world in the past tense in standard English. So Newspeak has not won. It's a much more hopeful book than people think. I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. It is such a delight to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure.